Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's sermon comes from John 11, 17 through 27. The word of God speaks to us. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus already been in a tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son who is coming into the world. This is God's word to us. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, welcome. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's so good to have you with us this morning. Um, Hey, um, I want to say whatever it is that you're bringing in with you, uh, this is not one of those things that you like check all of that out at the door. Uh, Your emotional stuff from the week, the hard stuff from the week, the the joys that you're bringing in, the shame that you carry, whatever it is, whatever the last seven days have looked like for you, we are really glad that you're here. Whatever it is that you believe, wherever you find yourself, we want we want to actually invite you to come in. And that whole idea of welcome, it's it's come in and be well. So don't check the baggage at the door and then show up at church pretending like you have to have it all together. That's not what we're trying to do here. Bring it in with you and and actually offer that to the Lord because I think the Lord wants to meet you in a powerful way today. So it's good to have you with us. Hey, real quick, I wanna just draw your attention to my buddy Bryce, Bryce Johnson and his beautiful family. Raise your hand for us so we can see and wave. Uh, Bryce serves as our pastoral resident at Frontline Yukon. And so if you don't know, Frontline is one church with five different congregations And man, Bryce and his wife and their family, they have been such a gift to our church, specifically to our Yukon congregation. Uh, But man, it's good to have them with us today. They took a a Sunday off from Yukon to come and worship with us. So I want to pray for us, but I also want to pray for our brothers and sisters out at Frontline Yukon today as well, as they're gathering the same time, the same, talking about the same stuff, doing the same things that we're doing here just out a little bit west. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather with the people of God. Thank you for the Johnson family. Thank you for the gift that they are to our church. We hold up Frontline Yukon to you today. We pray that you would bless that team. Be with Chad Puckett. Be with uh, all the team out there as they serve and lead. We pray that you would, you would uh, fill that congregation with more of your heart for the city, 
We pray that you'd fill them with the Holy Spirit. God, we pray today as they sit under the same words that we're sitting under, that they would be shaped and formed to look more like you. And then I I just pray for Frontline South today. I pray for us. I pray that whatever it is that we are carrying with us, the needs that we have, would you meet us? I I don't assume that there's any words that I could say that would uh, overly encourage or shape or help people today, but your word can. Your word has power, your word has life, your word has authority, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you shape us and would you form us and meet us today? We offer you our week, we offer you all that we've been carrying, we offer you the stuff that's deep inside of our chest, and we ask that you would come and you would move. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On Monday of last week, I attended a funeral, and as I was making my way home from the funeral, I was listening to... Uh, a Christmas playlist that my wife put together, and one of my favorite Christmas songs came on the radio, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I honestly think it's one of the top one or two best Christmas songs of all time, and specifically this lyric started to ring in my ears. I started to sing along. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And those are powerful words. Those are beautiful words. But having just left a funeral, it just kind of dawned on me, like, what, what am I singing right now? How, how is it that these words can be true? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, when death continues to happen all around us. Like, like, here's the question. There's 7.6 billion people on planet Earth, and all of them, every one of them is going to die. And they all have a name, and they have a unique identity, and they all have moms, and they have stories, and yet death is rampant in our world. So I'm just asking this question with you this morning. Like, if Jesus really was born so that death would die, why is there so much death everywhere? Have you ever felt that tension before? Like, Let me ask it a different way. Are we as Christians just trying to be uh, stepping into the Christmas spirit to feel better about life? Are we being unrealistic? Are we being overly sentimental? Or, Or is there something actually true and powerful about what Jesus came to do in his first coming and what he's gonna do in his second coming? If you've ever felt that tension before, I just wanna say welcome to you because that is the tension of Advent for each one of us. Advent is this unique place that actually every Christian finds themselves. You and I live our entire lives in the tension of Advent between the first coming of Jesus where he came to, to, to die and rise again for, to, to save us from our sins, and we wait eagerly longing for a second coming to make all things new, and in the middle of that is just all this tension. Uh, Fleming Rutledge in her book, Advent, the once and future coming of Jesus Christ, she says it this way, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. And that's where you and I find ourselves today. So here's what we're doing as a church. We are in the middle of an Advent series. And if you're like me and you didn't grow up in a church tradition that celebrated Advent, maybe you've got questions. 
Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And historically, what this season has been for the church is a space in time and a calendar year for the whole church to just pause and think about two events, to look back and think about the first coming of Jesus, where he came as a baby born in Bethlehem, and then simultaneously to look ahead to the future coming of Jesus, where he's going to return to this earth, not as a baby, but as the king over every king. Now, here's what's sad about American Christian culture. What's happened in American Christian culture over the last couple of decades is essentially we've, we've lost the plot line of the story that we find ourselves in, and we've cut off the last 15 minutes or so of this beautiful story of Christianity. What I mean is we talk a lot about the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. We talk about the death of Jesus. We even talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But sort of what happens after that is like, and now we're just supposed to live a good life and try not to make God too upset and one day we'll die and we'll go to heaven and that'll be it. But we've actually forgotten that there's coming a day where Jesus is going to return bodily to this earth and make all things new. And I wonder how many people in this room today have that as a bedrock of their faith that actually, not just today or this week, but multiple times throughout your life, you think about and you build your life on the reality that there is coming a day where Jesus is going to return to make all things new. What's sad is that very few of us do that anymore, that we've actually forgotten and lost this part of the story. And when you lose this part of the story, you lose all hope. You lose all joy. You lose everything that you and I are actually singing about today because there is no point if Jesus isn't coming back. So here's what we're doing as a church for this Advent series. We're actually not talking about a baby in a manger. We're not talking about the traditional stuff with shepherds and angels singing glory to God and the highest and the wise men that come from afar. Today, what we're talking about, and really over the next four weeks, we are thinking deeply about the final return of Jesus and all that goes into what happens when he comes back. Last week, our first week of Advent, we talked about the final return of Jesus. Pastor Sean preached a great sermon on this. If you missed it, uh, go back and listen to it. Today, we're gonna talk about the resurrection of the dead. Next week, we're gonna talk about the final judgment. You don't wanna miss it. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna talk about when Jesus comes back to judge everything. It's going to be great. And I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. It actually is going to be great. So come back for that. Bring a friend. And then finally, the, the, the final thing we're going to look at on December 18th is the new heavens and the new earth. So that's just a roadmap of where we're headed over the next few weeks. But what that means is today, we are talking about death. So Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hope that your Christmas season is off to a great start. All jokes aside, it's never okay to talk about death in our culture, is it? It doesn't matter if it's Christmas time or if it's on some random day in the middle of the summer. Death is always a cultural faux pas in the world that you and I find ourselves in. In his book, the title is The Worm at the Core, which is how this author describes what death is to humanity. The Worm at the Core, uh, author and psychologist Sheldon Solomon recounts this story of a five-year-old boy that I want you to think about. He says this little boy swam up and down in his bath and he played with the possibility of never dying. I don't want to be dead, ever. I don't want to die. After his mother told five-year-old Richard that he wouldn't die for a long time, the little boy smiled and said, that's all right. I've been worried and now I can get happy. Then he said he would like to dream about, quote, going shopping and buying things. 
Now, does that sound familiar to anyone else? The second you start to think about your own death, you go, oh, that's a long, long way off, and let's go eat at some restaurant. Let's go shopping, right? It's what we call existential whack-a-mole, where you have these existential thoughts and this crisis rise up of like, oh my gosh, there is coming a day that I'm going to die. What happens when I die? Do I just cease to exist? Or where do I go? And what is that going to look like? And, ah, and then before you think too deeply about it, you hit it with a trip to the store or you hit it with a latte or you hit it with a vacation or you numb out in some form or fashion so that you don't have to think about the inevitable. And the author goes on <clears throat> to make this observation. He says, Americans are arguably the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of french fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. So the good news is if you live in our culture and you start to think about deep things like your future impending death, you can just quickly numb out, quickly avoid, quickly stuff. You don't have to worry about that because it's probably a long way off. Here's what's crazy is that even though death is the most universal, inevitable reality of our lives, you and I live in a culture that avoids death at every turn. There's a recent study that was done where it showed that more than half of Americans, 54% of Americans said that, quote, they don't spend much or any time thinking about their own death. Most of us don't think about our death. In fact, those that do think about their death, uh, studies also go on to show that most of them, even among the elderly, consider their death a, lo their death a long way off that it's not gonna happen for a long, long time. And I would wonder, if you could just put truth serum in everybody in this room, I wonder how many of us think that we're gonna die in 2023. Like we just probably don't think in the next year I'm going to die, as if it's this reality that you and I are gonna live a long, long time. And yes, death is inevitable, it's universal, but it's so far off that I don't have to worry about it. And I just want you to pause for a minute and actually consider your future death. There is coming a day, it doesn't matter how healthy you are, it doesn't matter how much CrossFit you do, and we all know you do it because you talk about it all the time, it doesn't matter how much kale you eat or soy, grass, wheat, blah, 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 it doesn't matter how many essential oils you buy and rub all over, all over everywhere, right? It doesn't matter what you do, who you are, what you make of your life, or how much you accomplish, there is coming a day where every single person in this room is going to die. You're going to die. Death is inevitable, and it's universal. And even though it's inevitable and universal, you and I have this haunting feeling about that. It's the most terrifying reality that we live with, even though it's so common and all over the place. One author says it this way, is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It's been the defining issue for entire cultures, from the ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question that any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral, or talk to a parent who has recently lost a child, and you will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. So I know it's hard to do, but I want you to think about death with me today. And specifically, not just our death, but I want you to think more specifically, how does God himself feel about death? 
And is there any hope in the first coming of Jesus and in the second coming of Jesus for the fact that you and I are going to die? So in light of those questions, I want to jump into John chapter 11 and work through the story. I think it's one of the most helpful stories to get a perspective on how God feels about death. So John chapter 11, look at verse 1 with me. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. Just pause there for a minute. Yes, death is universal. Yes, death is going to reach everybody. And yet, don't forget that death is uniquely personal as well. As well. Like, this is a unique man named Lazarus from a specific place. He had a family history, he had sisters. This was someone that Jesus physically knew. This was someone that Jesus was friends with. And Jesus' own friend is getting sick, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. So, yes, it's universal, but it's profoundly personal as well. I'll fast forward in the story, go to verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Think about that. Mary is so overcome with grief and lament and sorrow that she hears that Jesus is showing up to the village, she can't even get herself out of the house to go greet him. She's just staying in the house overwhelmed with sorrow. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's question is honest, isn't it? It's, hey, if you would have been here, this never would have happened. You could have prevented this. And she's not saying it disrespectfully. She's couching it and putting it under the umbrella of truth. She says, I know you can do all things, but had you been here, this never would have happened. You could have prevented this. Have you ever felt death and thought, God, where are you? Like, you could have stopped this from happening and you didn't. How do I explain that? What do I do with that? Well, Martha's bringing her honest questions before Jesus about this. Fast forward, look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, out uh, out in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go... Sorry, golly, I need to learn how to read again. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same question that her sister Martha asked, hey, hey, where were you? Had you been here, this never would have happened. Look at verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man 
from dying. There's just a few things that I want you to see from the story about how God feels about death. Here's the first one. God in the flesh, when he sees death, he weeps over it. Now, I don't want you to miss the point of this story. If you grew up in church, you're at a deficit here because the only big takeaway that you have from the story is that the shortest verse in the Bible is in this passage, John eleven thirty five, 35, shortest verse in the Bible. And can I just frankly say, like, hey, who honestly cares about that? Like, are you gonna win Bible trivia with that? If that's the one big thing that you know about from this passage, you've missed the whole heart of the story. Hey, don't forget, like, the whole point here is not that it's the shortest verse in the Bible, it's that Jesus wept. Sean Evans, our, one of our pastors, he said this at a funeral once and it stuck with me, that it's not shocking here that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, is it? You kind of expect that to happen. But what is shocking is knowing he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead when he goes to the tomb and he approaches all of this whole scene and it's all playing out and his friend has died, that it moves him to the point where he weeps over death. This is shocking. Why does God weep as this perfect incarnate human Christ Jesus? Why does he weep at death? It's because he's perfect. It's because he fully enters into our pain and our sorrow. And friends, this is the whole point of Christmas, is that God did not look down on the earth with all of our pain, with all of our dysfunction, with all the brokenness, and just say, like, why, why do you guys care about this? Everybody dies. It's just a fact of life. Just get over it. But when God sees our world lost in darkness, lost in death, his heart is moved to the place of weeping. That this is why Jesus came. This is why he left his throne. This is why Christmas is a thing because God wanted to come near to us. He wanted to in encounter what it was like to be a human being. He wanted to experience the full weight of it. And here he is looking death in the eyes and it moves him to the point, not just of tears, not of sobbing, but of weeping, which is a very, very different thing than just simply sobbing. Jesus here stands deaf in the face and he's moved to the place of weeping. So I just want to say to you, like some of you have lost loved ones in the last few days, the last couple of months, this, this year or two. And I just want to say to you, like when Jesus looks you in the eyes, he's moved with compassion to the place of weeping. He's not looking at you saying, hey, why, why is this still bothering you? He's moved over death. Jesus weeps over death. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second thing, that Jesus, in addition to weeping, gets angry at death. Notice again what he says in verse 33 or what it says in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, look at this line. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that phrase, deeply moved, deeply moved in his spirit in Greek literally means to be moved with anger and indignation. This is not talking about getting emotionally moved to the place of sobbing. This is about what happens when you see something horrible and wrong and evil filled with injustice and it moves you to the place of outrage and anger. Jesus is, is here not just getting moved with emotional sadness, he's getting moved with anger and indignation. Who is Jesus angry with? Well, if you read some of the different commentaries that are out on this passage, it's really interesting the different answers that they give to try to explain why Jesus is so hot and angry and outraged in this story. Some people have suggested that Jesus is angry at Mary and Martha because they've asked this question like, hey, if you would have been here, none of this would have happened. If you would have been on time, you could have 
kept this whole thing from taking place. And so they feel like Jesus may be here. He's feeling angry at Mary and Martha for asking that sort of question. Others have suggested that actually, no, Jesus is angry at the crowds here. He's angry at the crowds because that line where they said, hey, could not he who opened up the eyes of the blind kept this from happening? So here the crowds are doubting his power and Jesus feels angry about that. Others have ironically suggested that Jesus was angry at Lazarus for dying. Like, man, that, that joker, why did he have to die? Like, I was almost there. Just wait a couple more days, man. Like, hang on. Why did he have to die? Suffice it to say, that's a really stupid answer to the question of why Jesus is angry. And then some, truly some commentaries have said, no, what's happening here is Jesus is angry at himself. Had I only been there, I could have stopped this. Man, I was just a couple of days too late. All of those answers are really, really unhelpful. Jesus here is not angry with Mary or Martha. He's not angry at the crowds. He's not angry at Lazarus for dying. And he's definitely not angry at himself. Who is Jesus filled with indignation and anger towards? Death itself. Death is the enemy here. Death is the intruder. Death is the tyrant that does not belong in the good world that God has made. And when God in the flesh encounters death, he both weeps over it and he's filled with anger and indignation at death. He doesn't make a peace treaty with it. He hates death to its very core. And I just want to say, you and I as followers of Jesus, we need to embody the heart of God towards death more than we do. We live in a culture where we've made peace treaties with death as Christians, where we say really unhelpful, stupid things to people in the middle of their own loss and in their own grief. And when you go to funerals, you hear some of the dumbest stuff that you'll ever hear, like God needed another angel up in heaven. Or someone told me between services that at a funeral they were at, somebody said, here's why this happened, because God needed a new interior designer. And if you don't say something as stupid as that, then maybe you say something like, well, it was just their time to go. Or he lived a really good life. Or, well, I know that she's in a better place. And friends, I'm not trying to take away from the hope that we have as Christians, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But can we just make an agreement together that we're going to stop saying really stupid stuff to each other at funerals? That we're going to look at death in the eye the way Jesus did, where he weeps over it and he gets mad about it because death is an enemy. It does not belong in this world. And if you've ever felt it, if you've ever seen a dead body, if you've ever had to be with someone who's lost someone, if you've ever faced death, you know this is an evil tyrant. It's ruining something that God designed. Fleming Rutledge says it this way. She says, In my ministry, I've learned to recognize the look and the feel and the smell of death. I've been present with people at the time of death many times, and I've never become immune to the change that comes over the body. The New Testament refers to death as an enemy. Even in the case of what we call a merciful death, there's still a horrible indignity, a fearsome intrusiveness about death that causes us to feel its presence as a hostile, invading power that robs the human being of everything it was ever meant to be. Friends, it's okay to be angry, but direct your anger in the right place. Be angry at death. Jesus hates it, and so should we. That leads me to the third thing that I want you to see, which is not only that Jesus weeps and gets angry at death, but Jesus brings life to the dead. His anger and his weeping culminate in his action. And this is what I love about Jesus, that he doesn't just feel deeply. 
He then responds deeply with action out of what he feels. Look at what it goes on to say in chapter 11, 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Maybe you don't think of some of the miracles of Jesus occurring out of his anger, but this is one of the miracles that occurs out of the anger and indignation of Jesus towards death. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I love the way the King James Version reads. It says, uh, Lazarus stinketh, right? It's like, yes, that's fair to say. It's the, the Tupperware dish has been in the fridge a couple months too long. Do not crack that lid in the house. Take that sucker outside, right? Uh, he stinks, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Paint this picture in your head. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love the story. Like Jesus could have been like, hey, Lazarus, come out and come out like fully prepared to come out, not all wrapped up. But it's so powerful. He just yells to Lazarus to like wake up and Lazarus's brainstem turns back on. His heart starts beating again. The blood starts pumping, but he's still all wrapped up. And so he's like, I gotta, if Jesus is calling for me to come out. So he's like hobbling out of the tomb. This scene is powerful and it is hilarious and it is amazing. It's, it's beautiful. It's all of it. And friends, here's the point. Every time that I can tell, every time in the gospel accounts that I can tell where Jesus encounters death face to face, he raises the person from the dead. I, there, there's not a story that we have in our New Testament where he encounters death and just lets it go by. There's a story where a single mom has a, a son who died and it's a perfectly good funeral procession and Jesus walks up and ruins the whole thing by raising the son from the dead. And he's constantly doing that. Why? Because Jesus weeps at death He's angry at death, and this is why he came, so that death would die once and for all. And this is, in fact, what we have earlier in this passage, John eleven twenty five. 25, it says this, one of the best Christmas verses that you and I could ever hang on to. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is why Jesus came, so that people who are in death and in darkness could have life and light in Jesus, so that those who place their faith in Jesus and submit to Jesus as Lord could actually not experience death eternal, but life eternal in Jesus. This is why he came. Now, that raises a really, really major problem that we need to deal with, which is this. What happened to Lazarus 10 years later, or 20 years later, or 50 years later? Uh, eventually, Lazarus got sick again, right? Uh, eventually, he had a bad fall or an accident at work or he went to sleep one night and he didn't wake up the next day. Eventually, Lazarus died again, which is a big bummer, right? It's like, I've already died once and now I got to die twice, 
right? And, and, and here's what's crazy. Everybody that Jesus uh, brought back to life in his earthly ministry did what? They died again. So is there any lasting hope for you and I? Or are we just saying like, yeah, I mean, it's good that he, wrote, he, he brought them back from the dead and we can have hope. And then we're going to die again? Well, what's the point of the story, friends? What, is there any hope for you and I? Well, that gives us something that we have to really wrestle with. And that's the difference, that's the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Don't think of the story in John 11 as resurrection from the dead. Think of it more primarily as resuscitation. Resuscitation is different because resuscitation says your brainstem, when it's turned off, when you die, gets turned back on. Your heart stops beating, and then when you're raised from the dead again, your heart starts beating again. The blood starts pumping through your veins again, and you're resuscitated back to life, whether it's been a day or a few days or a week or months. That's called resuscitation. It's not resurrection. But friends, resurrection is something that's actually coming for every single one of us in Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, he will bring with him the resurrection of the dead. And that's different than resuscitation because your body's not just raised to then be sick again and be mortal again and then be able to die again. But actually what happens when Jesus returns is that he will bring with him your soul. And if you are already dead when he returns, your body will physically be raised from the dead and glorified in a totally different state to never get sick or frail or weak again, and, and you will never, ever die. But you will live in a resurrected body with hair and skin and fingernails, a real body that can taste and touch and smell and run the way that you're supposed to run on this re redeemed new earth for the rest of your life. And it'll go on and on and on in the presence of Jesus, never to stop. That day is coming for us when Jesus returns. Andrew Wilson describes that like this. When Jesus returns, death and all its sidekicks will be thrown into the trash forever, and my body will reflect the realities of a world pulsing with resurrection life. It will be raised imperishable, unbreakable, impervious to disease, indestructible by sickness or the ravages of time. It will be raised in glory and power, free from the limitations and weaknesses of our present existence. And when I consider the resurrection body of Jesus, his transformed physicality, whereby he could appear in a locked room and would never die, but could still hug his friends and enjoy a barbecue on the beach, I start to get quite excited about that. You are not going to spend your eternal existence floating in heaven. Do you realize that? Heaven is not your home. Heaven is a temporary place for people who die who are in Christ. It's not your home. It's temporary. The, the Bible talks about the new heavens coming down out of heaven, out of, out of heaven to this earth, the new Jerusalem, landing on this earth, and you will spend your eternal existence as a Christian here on this redeemed earth in a real body, never to die again. That is beautiful. But don't take my word for it. Don't take Andrew Wilson's word for it. First Thessalonians chapter 4.13 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Do you see, like as Christians, it's okay to grieve. We, we grieve, but here's the difference. Now as Christians in light of the return of Jesus, we grieve, but without, we grieve with this deep, profound level of hope. It's not a hopelessness that we're stepping into. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then I love this line. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I don't have time to unpack this passage fully, but I don't believe that this is a passage about the rapture, about people getting sucked off of the planet and spending an eternity up in heaven. I don't believe that that's what this passage is about. If you want to hear more or have questions, hit us up. We've done a whole podcast about this that we can talk, talk with you about. Remember, this is a story of Jesus not bringing us up, but him coming down. And here's what's going to happen. When Jesus returns, he is actually returning with the souls of those who have died before. And then those of us who are alive, who have not died when Jesus returns, are going to temporarily be caught up with him in the clouds and greet him and welcome him back to this earth, which is his rightful home. This is actually based on a Roman military processional where a Roman general would be out to battle and would have victories and then would come home on a long journey. He would return back to his home. And when he would return, the people in the city would go out of the city and meet him and greet him and then bring him back into his rightful city. And here's what this would look like. There'd be this giant processional, this parade, where the general would be in the front and then the soldiers and everyone would be applauding and cheering and celebrating. There'd be trumpets going off. It's this pomp and circumstance, this beautiful event taking place. And then in the very, very back of the line, there'd be like the treasures and the bounty of all these conquered nations and people groups. And then behind that, at the very end, there would be, guess who? Chained prisoners. They'd be chained together, prisoners of war, the defeated enemy. Often they'd be stripped naked, and this would be a way to humiliate them. So the, the, the cheers and the applause would, would switch and turn to jeers and taunts, and, and, and those people in the back of the line, as they're brought into the city, would be led in chains with their head held low, and they'd be led into the arena where eventually they'd be executed either by wild beasts or by gladiators, and it was a way to just show the utter victory of Rome over all of their defeated enemies. Now, th now think about this. Paint this picture in your head with me. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a processional. Jesus is going to be first coming home, and then the dead in Christ are going to be coming with him in the clouds. And then we're going to go out in the sky, whatever that looks like, I don't know, 15 feet up or so, for a couple of minutes, greet him in the air, come back to this earth, and then guess who's going to be in the very, very back of the line? Satan, sin, and death humiliated, chained, led in, and they are gonna eventually be thrown into hell never to come out again where death will fully, completely, finally be defeated. Athanasius says this, death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch, bound hand and foot. The passers-by sneered him, hitting him, abusing him, no longer afraid of this cruelty and rage because of the ruler who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded by the Savior on the cross. And that leads me to the last thing real briefly that I want you to see, and I'll close with this. Jesus ultimately destroys death by dying and by rising. 
that Jesus didn't just come to give us resurrection, but he actually came to give us resurrection and destroy death. And the way that he destroys death is through his own death. There's something powerful said in John 11 that almost all the time gets overlooked, but it's one of the most significant verses in the whole chapter. Look at verse 53, because this is the response of the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time. After Jesus had done this powerful miracle, they start to feel like, oh my gosh, now everybody's going to know that Jesus is powerful and they're going to all like be on his side instead of ours. We're going to lose political influence in, in our culture, so we've got to deal with Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 53. So from that day on, right after Jesus brought Lazarus from the dead, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Think about this. Jesus knows this. By heading into Bethany to bring Lazarus out of the dead, Jesus is knocking over a domino where he's going to be headed towards death himself. Or here's another way to say it. Jesus knows that to get Lazarus out of his tomb, Jesus is gonna have to enter his own tomb. To deal with this death of this man, Jesus is gonna have to die on a cross in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus does, not just for Lazarus, but for every single one of us. On the cross, Jesus dies not to escape death, but to defeat death once and for all. In the death of Jesus Christ, he dies and then he rises again as the first fruits, as the promise, the hope of what he intends to do for all those who look to Jesus. Jesus rose again from the dead and when we look to Jesus, he is going to bring us his resurrection life one day. That's coming for you. That's why at Christmas time, we sing this song. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king.